Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of your favorite real estate podcast, the Canadian Real Estate Investor, hosted by myself, Nick Hill, and always joined by the wonderful, the intelligent, the guy who is coming to me live from a pillow fort. Grow up a little bit. Yeah. Daniel Foch. Big, big <laughs> pillow fort architect right now, actually. I, uh, I misscheduled this, uh, recording and, um, I'm at the office and there's, it's a busy office. So, um, I had with, to. It's also with glass walls. It's not only busy, but it's also sexy. So glass, empty glass boxes do not do any sound, any favors. So yeah, it's true. Dan has, aside from having fun in the pillow fort, it it's also has a practical use. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, what are we talking about to, uh, today? Yeah, today we're going to be chatting about an interesting pair of things. And I'm really not sure why this was such a topic you wanted to discuss, Dan, because one of them I love uh, and I want more of it. And the other one I loathe and I don't want more of it. So we're going to be talking about money, which I love and want and need more and laundry, which I loathe and don't enjoy doing whatsoever. So unless we're talking about laundromats, where can you make money from doing laundry? What's the connection here, Dan? I'm going to assume you're talking about money laundering, not money laundry. Although, I mean, I guess it is sort of the process <laughs> of cleaning money um, or the process of illegally concealing the origin of money obtained from illicit activities such as drug trafficking, corruption, embezzlement, or gambling by converting it into a legitimate source. Okay, yes, that that does make a lot more sense than talking about laundry today. Um, so I guess this is kind of similar to, you know, all the mob movies I've seen where they're literally washing the bills and then, you know, they've got the iron out and they're ironing them kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, that's among them. I think uh, Breaking Bad, he like literally puts cash in a laundry machine to make it look like older, <laughs> like to age it. Right. And then also, um, Ozarks, which I think Ozarks actually probably is like the best iteration of what Canadian money laundering in real estate looks like in some instances, which is sort of like this renovation-esque kind of thing um, and taking cash. I mean, contractors love being paid cash. But anyway, I'll let you, I'll let you dive into this because I know you've put a lot of research into this one and then we can talk sort of about the implications and kind of what this means for Canadian real estate. For sure. Ozark, by the way, great show. Jason Bateman just does a great job. So, and, and you're right. I think there's not a clearer illustration on TV, uh, for money laundering than, than Ozark. Um, now money laundering has three steps. The first one being placement, which is where the dirty money is introduced into the financial system. The second step is layering, where illicit funds are moved around to disguise their origin. And the third and final is integration, where that same money re-enters the legitimate economy through, you know, quote unquote, clean investments. So apparently the money laundering, and this is funny because it sounds like consultant speak. Like I'm like, the, I can just picture a guy from McKinsey <laughs> being like, okay, like what are the three V's of money laundering here with a PowerPoint behind him? But money laundering is all about the three V's, <laughs> volume, velocity, and venue. How do you quickly move large amounts of cash and how can you disguise the value and how can you exploit locations, venue that provide 
privacy protection for the person who doesn't want the identity of the income to be known. Now, this may or may not come as a shock, but Canada, even though, you know, we're known internationally for being a small, polite country, actually plays a major role in international money laundering. So, again, what does that have to do with this podcast? Why are we talking about it? Well, a lot of that laundered money ends up in our beloved real estate market. In fact, it's such a major issue that the United States Department of State named Canada as one of the major money laundering jurisdictions in 2018 in their International Narcotics Control Strategy Report on money laundering. So as Canadians, we are likely familiar with the term snowbirds. A snowbird is a person who migrates from a colder northern parts of North America to warmer southern locales, typically during the winter. So, like, literally when everyone I know goes to Florida to avoid Canadian winters for a few months. Yeah, in fact, we even have a, they even have their own association, the CSA, not to be confused with the ones who do safety regulations, the Canadian Snowbird Association, <laughs> and they're a national not-for-profit organization dedicated to defending and improving the rights and privileges of Canadians who travel to escape winter. Love it. Now, Canada is such an attractive place for money laundering. There's even a special name to describe that activity. And similar to the snowbirds, because, you know, everything up here is cold. Uh, the activity here is known as snow washing. So snow washing is a type of money laundering. And it was coined by the Toronto Star to describe the flow of dirty money entering the Canadian economy for the purposes of either tax evasion or terrorist financing. And the term is now being used internationally. As tax lawyer Jonathan Garbutt explains, you've got this entity in Canada, banks or other parties in other countries are just going to presume that it's legitimate and okay, pure as the driven snow of the great white north. So there you go. Snowbirds love snow washing, I guess. So why is snow washing a problem? An expert panel convened in BC has estimated that approximately $47 billion is laundered or washed into Canada in 2018, which is the most recent year that we have the data for. Other experts have pegged that figure up to $100 billion. Snow washing is a problem because it allows criminals and tax evaders to use Canada as a haven to conceal harmful and illegal financial activities. Left unchecked, corruption spreads within Canadian communities and criminal operations to grow to become powerful and difficult to prosecute. So how does that dirty money get, quote unquote, washed into the Canadian economy? Anyone wanting to launder money in Canada may be able to conceal their identity by anonymously purchasing a property or by creating a company without disclosing their true identity. By remaining anonymous, individuals can use dirty money to buy real estate or funnel the funds through company operations. Again, go watch Ozark. That's exactly what they do. They are literally scrambling just the same thing in Breaking Bad, scrambling to figure out businesses where they can launder the money. But we're here to talk about real estate. So, for instance, once that property is sold or once that company's shares are sold, the secret owner can benefit from the proceeds of the sale, again, go back to those three steps of money laundering, placement, layering, and integration. What we're talking about when that property is sold is that money re-entering the legitimate economy. 
And a lot of these companies would be known as what you hear a lot about as shell companies. So Nick, what is a shell company? I'm I'm happy to do it. Go ahead. Nictionary got. I'm happy. Nictionary got this, and not Dan Finition. That was a. Uh, you know, now that we're both doing these, there's competition for them. It is a very competitive space. <laughs> very competitive space. Giving definitions on our podcast here. Very competitive. <laughs> um, okay, so what is a shell company? Probably something that a lot of us have heard before. Maybe some of you understand. But here's a quick definition of it: a shell corporation is a corporation without active business operations or significant assets. These types of corporations are not necessarily illegal, but they are sometimes used illegitimately, such as to disguise business ownership from law enforcement or from the public. Legitimate reasons for shell corporations include such things as startups using the business entity as a vehicle to raise funds uh, or in other cases to conduct hostile takeovers or to take a company public. But Dan, there's such a negative connotation with, you know, these shell companies. So why don't you tell us some of these ways that, you know, people can abuse a shell company? Yeah, so people abuse shell companies in, in a number of different ways, even though there are legitimate reasons, like you mentioned, to set one up, many wealthy individuals use them for personal gain. Progressive taxation within the United States, that is tax brackets, slowly cause people to seek personal tax havens. This is where you hear a lot about offshoring, you know, Cayman Islands. There's a, a tax technique that even large corporations use called the double Dutch with an Irish sandwich or something like that. Um, <laughs> actually, like this is why you see like delicious. most, most, yeah, most tech companies are um, headquartered in the Netherlands. When, if you go on their website and see it at the bottom, um, everyone's got a PO box in Delaware. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so th- it's a gray area. Um, of tax evasion and a lot of people use the word tax aversion um, where people funnel earnings through shell companies in such a way that it isn't counted towards their personal income within the United States in a lot of cases or within their domestic country. And so they're able to save on tax. So why does this problem exist in Canada? Now, according to a 2017 analysis by Transparency International, Canada has tied with South Korea for the weakest corporate transparency rules among G20 nations. Dan, there's another record broken that I don't know if we want broken. Slowest permits, longest commute times. I guess the crane index is a good record to have, but here we go again. Um, Shell companies are often associated with sleepy tropical islands such as the British Virgin Islands, the Seychelles, the Caymans. But it is just as easy in Canada to set up an, an anonymous, untraceable company. Obviously, the weather's not as good up here, but if you're not there running the company anyways, I don't know why that matters. Uh, Canada has federal and provincial business registries, yet information about beneficial owners is missing. That lack of publicly available information about the true owners of companies makes it easy for individuals to conceal their identities and set up companies to launder money. So I guess the big question becomes, what is the impact of snow washing on the Canadian economy? Money laundering contributes to artificial price bubbles and makes housing unaffordable for Canadians. And it's kind of easy just to understand this in a fundamental way where, you know, people are, 
they have an incentive to potentially lose money. There's people who are loss harvesting, um, or they haven't, they're the motive for them purchasing property isn't based on any real investment fundamentals. They don't need it to make money. They don't need it to earn a yield. They don't need it even to capitally appreciate. They literally just need it to put money in for all. You know, ulterior motives. And, and so they're very detached from price. They're a very price insensitive consumer. The other piece is, you know, in a lot of cases, people are doing this from overseas. And so they aren't even familiar with the local market. And so they, you know, they don't have an idea or a real, they're not in touch with local pricing. Um, and the expert panel in BC that talks about this indicated that money laundering through BC real estate has contributed to a 5% increase in the price of housing. This is a big problem as vacancy rates are already low, quite low in most Canadian cities and money laundering affects the price of real estate. So let's look at a report from 2016 where um, that surfaced where foreign students with no known income were buying homes worth millions of dollars in primarily in Vancouver. That's where a lot of this got a lot of attention, but it, and we'll get to this, but the report finds that yes, yeah, started in Vancouver. That's where it's particularly bad, but it does happen across the country. So, these students with, again, no known income were buying homes worth millions of dollars. And locals said it was yet more evidence that foreigners were inflating prices in Canada's dearest property markets. It was also evidence of a homegrown problem. The students turned out to be figureheads for anonymous firms whose ultimate owners cannot be identified because the information is legally required by the land registry. Canadian authorities are concerned about the abuses caused by such opacity and the property market may well be attracting foreign criminals and corrupt officials seeking to longer their dirty money here. Now, research points to several case studies where multi-million dollar properties in Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver were purchased by foreign government officials that were even under investigation for corruption in their own home countries. So we've got students with no money and no jobs buying, you know, mansions in, in Toronto and Vancouver and then corrupt government officials doing the same stuff. So we obviously got a bit of an issue here. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, uh, it's unignorable that the problem exists. It is, it is funny too. Like I, I've always said that I think that foreign governments have just as much of an incentive for, to get Canada to have a, um, a, um, land registry that is open and searchable, a beneficial ownership registry. Um, like, you know, the Chinese government as an example, cause we hear a lot about, like you're saying, corrupt politicians putting money into, into Chinese re- or Chinese money into Canadian real estate. Their government, who's very powerful government, as we're learning currently, um, would probably also be incentivized to want to know or to, to understand the ownership structure of Canadian real estate. Just using that as an example, cause it is becoming very, a very geopolitical issue. The other thing I want to um, note, cause this just came out like four days ago from the BC government before I jump into this New York Times article here is um, they came out with this thing called uh, this um, unexplained wealth order, I think is what it's called. Yeah. Which basically yeah, you heard this. That. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. so it's like the, the BC government is targeting organized crime by creating a new suite of tools to seize proceeds of crime, such as fast cars, glamorous homes and luxury goods, making gang life unprofitable. Unpro- I think the gang life part, it may be they're a little bit less in touch with it. Like there are people who literally just launder money. Like, you know, I mean, obviously there are sinister reasons that people have cash, lots of cash, but there are also people who just launder money for tax purposes. Right. Um, 
I, on that note, I, I want I want some unexplained wealth. Come on, yeah, exactly. That. <laughs> um, yeah, and it, well, it's a lot of it. it's like these people are living in ten million dollar homes, but then claiming like fourteen thousand dollars or whatever. Like their income is below the poverty line. So it's like, whoa, come on. And so they they basically they're trying to make it so they basically have this way to. It's an amendment of the Civil Forfeiture Act, actually, including the creation of these, these un, unexplained wealth orders, which would allow would require people to explain how they acquired their assets if there is suspicion of unlawful activity. Um, anyway, here, I'm going to, um, I'm going to jump to this article from the New York Times that you put in here. So $200,000 fine aims to expose, expose money laundering in Canada. So this is another, this is a federal level, um, policy that they're, that they're trying to put, um, together. In a new bid to end the use of shell companies to hide crimes and avoid taxes, the federal government will require clear records of corporate ownership. Will provincial governments follow? So Ontario being one of the biggest that doesn't have a beneficial ownership registry. The nature of money laundering, of course, makes it measuring it makes measuring it precisely impossible. But a 2019 report of the use of real estate in British Columbia for money laundering estimated that more than 40 billion Canadian dollars per year are, mon- are laundered nationally much of it through shell corporations. Wow. The criminals, yeah, the criminals who who run the shells aren't the small-time crooks who another inquiry in British Columbia found clean their cash at casinos, so another very efficient way of laundering money is through casinos. And we know this from Ozarks as well if you've watched that. Um, that by handing over. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. As as loans to gamblers in garbage bags and hockey bags stuffed with $20 banknotes. That sounds fun, showing up the casino with a garbage bag full of money. I'm sure that wouldn't attract any attention. Uh, instead, the shell operators run money through an interlocking series of corporations whose interconnections and ownership are opaque, making it virtually impossible for investigators to trace illicit funds and arrest their beneficiaries. But under a newly proposed legislation overhaul, it could be more difficult for snow washers to exploit the Canadian law, which is now among the weakest in the world, requiring corporate ownership transparency. Hate to see it. This week, Francois-Philippe Champagne, the Minister of Innovation, Science and Industry, proposed this law that legal experts say would bring Canada in line with international standards, so not last in place in that in that comparison so the idea is pretty straightforward corporations will regularly be required to report to the government the names of the individuals who ultimately control them that information will go into a registry that will with a with a few exceptions like the records of companies owned by miners be open for anyone to view it will also be cross-checked against tax records and sent to government agencies that track money laundering i imagine there's a lot of people scrambling to change directors on their companies (laughs) right now Um, and i don't really know how this it gets rid of these like little figurehead scapegoat guys that are getting paid to drive around in Lambos and own corpse. Um, I want while some job. provinces, including Manitoba and PEI, have have or are moving for moving toward ownership disclosure systems of their own. Those systems are, are sometimes much less, much less stringent than the new federal requirement would be. And Quebec is implementing a system similar to the federal plan that will be open to the public. Ontario's system doesn't have a registry for the public to consult at all. It merely requires companies to keep a record of their ultimate owners that can be requested by the government. And I think through like alternate channels, court like corporate searches and land registry, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Now, if passed, the new law would allow for fines up to 200,000 Canadian dollars. 
Yeah, it sounds like a lot of money, but it really is a drop in the bucket if you're laundering millions, um, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars a year, $200,000, uh, and a jail sentence for up to six months for those who ignore it really could just be sounds more like a slap on the wrist than than any kind of real punishment but you know who knows um yeah i mean i, exactly. I think like to me sorry the the number the two hundred thousand dollar number is like a joke in the grand scheme of things of this being it, billions of dollars like to me it's a small cost of, be, of doing business it's a cost of doing business exactly you know you get one of the you get you know one guy that's been driving around in a lamborghini for three years has to call up 200 grand and go spend a couple nights in jail it's not going to fix the problem. Um, exactly how the government will figure out that criminals aren't adding to this list of laws that they are break is not entirely clear at this stage either. The vast majority of companies would follow the new rules and, you know, the regime, the regime would ultimately only be as good as its enforcement. Now, that's a great article, but I want to jump into the report that this article had mentioned, which is combating money laundering in BC real estate. Uh, again, this is a national issue, but it really did gain a lot of notoriety uh, in BC, where I, th- I believe the problem is probably worse than it would likely go Toronto and Montreal after that. Um So I just want to go over their executive summary and a few of the conclusions that the panel found, which ideally we will be enacting um, over the coming years. So the first one here is money laundering significantly damages our society and causes ongoing harm, not limited to the real estate sector or other economic sectors. Money laundering is a contagious, corrupting influence on society, damaging the reputations and stability of professions and institutions that need to be enabled, that need to enable complex money laundering schemes and spreading the damage through civil society. It affects real estate markets and contributes to the affordable housing problem that we're facing at a national level. So the amount of money laundering is significant, but it's difficult to measure, obviously, because these are things that people are deliberately hiding. The panel conservatively estimated that 40 plus billion dollar figure, I think 46 for 2018 um, in Canada and then in BC at 6.3 billion or 7.4 billion for 2018. This is the first money laundering uh, estimate for Canada or a province generated on the basis of economic analysis and modeling for the first uh, inherent, sorry, the um, and it, it basically stresses the inherent secrecy of an activity designed to hide the true nature of financial transactions, which is what you know really does make it challenging to measure. So, together with a lack of reliable internationally consistent data, it means that there's really no definitive way to measure that, and that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, we always talk about you know how hard it is to get good data on on anything canadian real estate the lack of data the lagging indicators well putting together data points for money laundering in canadian real estate i can only imagine would have been an almost near impossible task um the third point here money laundering investments in bc real estate is sufficient to have raised housing prices and contributed to bc's housing affordability crisis i think this is where we really start to see the pain points for the rest of Canadians who are like, okay, money laundering, you know, garbage bags of money in a casino. Why is that affecting me? Well, because it's inflating our housing prices. 
The data limitations that make it difficult to estimate the level of money laundering make it even more challenging to estimate the allocation of money laundering to specific economic sectors, such as real estate and the impact of those investments on our home prices. The panel cautiously estimates that about 5 to 7% of the value of real estate transactions in the province, again, that's British Columbia, result from money laundering investments. The estimate impact would be increasing house prices to about 5 to 7%. Successfully reducing money laundering investments in BC real estate should have a modest but observable impact on housing affordability. You know what? We'll see. I think that's going to be a massive undertaking. First, you got to figure it out. Then, you know, it's probably going to take a few years to flush that stuff out. Dan, what's the fourth point we've got here? Here's the fourth point talks about red flag analysis, which is hilarious. I probably could have used that earlier in my life. Um, <laughs> in the, in the, outside of the, uh, the business capacity, perhaps, but, um, the, it demonstrates the need for data collection, combination and sharing improvements to distinguish between legitimate and money laundering or, uh, and money laundering real estate activity. So, you know, what's, what's actually part of this, like, sort of criminal enterprise and what's part of real, in- uh, enterprise and um, and which ones are causing the the bad uh, negative externalities or or the causing the the problems here. Um, analysis of, of data sets to identify transactions that share characteristics with known money laundering techniques, which is the red flag analysis, requires both access to a variety of linked data sets and better collection of data about the characteristics of money laundering transactions found in BC. The panel shows that characteristics commonly associated with money laundering can be observed in public data occur in significant proportions of properties and transactions demonstrating the need for more information, more data, especially that beneficial ownership registry that they talk about. So that's that's really the solution here to this data issue is we can start seeing these patterns and associating them with people or corpse or whatever. You start working toward a solution. Uh, now, there are a bunch more, but let's skip to the last one here, number 12. Money laundering should be addressed across Canada. This is not just a BC problem, and it extends far beyond housing affordability. Across the country, our society is being infected, uh, affected and infected by money laundering, and every province that has the opportunity to and, and the obligation to make a significant contribution. In fact, without broad federal and provincial regulatory involvement, Canada cannot be successful in combating money laundering is what they finish off with there. So we really got to do this together. This is a joint effort for people across the country, governments across the country. Now let's go over the panel's vision for effective money laundering, an effective money laundering, anti-money laundering system, I should say, not an effective money laundering system. We don't want that. Now they had 29 recommendations. Um, the vision is to fight the against money laundering, and that will be a priority both federally and provincially. So I'm just going to read a few specifics here. The anti-money laundering system will include renewed criminal justice efforts supported by more effective intelligence from FinTrack, which is Financial Transactions Reports Analysis Center of Canada. And that governing body assists in the detection, the prevention, and the deterrence of money laundering and the financing of terrorist activities. 
and the regulators and actors involved in the real estate market. Now, provincial regulatory efforts related to the financial and real estate sectors will be explicitly included as part of the anti-money laundering system, bringing a full range of investigation and enforcement authorities to bear on any money laundering situation. Public beneficial ownership disclosure for land and for legal persons such as corporations, trusts, and partnerships will add valuable information that it's vital in undertaking in these investigations. So it is interesting because realtors are really the primary line of defense with FinTrack, at least in the Ontario market, and I think in much of uh, the Canadian real estate market. So if you've purchased a property, you've probably had to provide a pick your driver's license for a FinTrack. So there's a couple of different layers. Number one is they have to verify your identity. So there's an individual verification process and they that's usually where they'll ask for your driver's license or your passport or something like that. Usually two pieces of ID. Um, and then there's also this one called the receipt of funds. So they need to document where the check comes from because maybe you're buying the house, but then all of a sudden the deposit check comes from some foreign entity or whatever it is. And they're trying to, to eliminate some of these things. Um, and, you know, if you purchase and your realtor was... Um, was by very by the book. They typically will have to actually give you a brochure that says something like, um, you know, your realtor is asking you questions because it's the law and it explains the new federal money laundering and anti-terrorist financing act. So I find it just interesting. Number one, cause like, I do think that realtors might not be the best executors of, of, um, this last line of defense for, for FinTrack. But, uh, and, and now they, I think they are actually layering it into mortgage professionals as well. Um, but so that could be maybe a little bit of a <laughs> the breakdown in the system that's happening there. Um, anyway, FinTrack will be able to provide suspicious transactions information to regulators as well as law enforcement and designated federal agencies. All agencies will have better access to shared linked data in a way that is con- conducive to analysis. So in a format that they can you know, get through quickly. The investigative functions throughout the regulatory domain will better equipped to utilize the information available through the availability of personnel and specialized investigative skills or coordination mechanisms. And the regulatory framework for real estate will be more effective in dealing with market abuse. And this is, you know, we're seeing more and more layers of regulation happening that the transaction is becoming more and more sophisticated, looks more like a capital markets transaction where you need KYC forms or know your client and stuff like that. Um, not only because of better information and investigation, but also because the framework itself will be more complete. So you're adding laws here, right? You know, I think uh, I just wanted to, to stop and, and focus in on something you said right there, the know your client. You know, we've talked about this so many times and in so many different perspectives as well, right? I mean, it is our job as industry professionals to know our clients. And, and you know, this came up, Dan, when we talked about mortgage fraud, when we've talked about rental fraud, and we've talked about title fraud, all these heightened, um, you know, fraud is through the roof across all aspects of, of real estate. Basically, anywhere where you can commit fraud in a real estate transaction, it's it's through the roof right now. Um it is, it is interesting because at the be- very beginning, like the opening of the big short, Michael Burry says one of the hallmarks of mania is you see an increase in the instances and sophistication of fraud. And, uh, and that's what he uses as a leading indicator for, um, the bubble that's happening. Yeah. I mean, I just find it fascinating that this is all kind of happening at the same time. And I don't think it's by any chance a coincidence. So anyways, let's get back to it. As a result of these changes, money laundering will be 
a will be uh, detected more enforcement action will be taken as long as anti-money laundering efforts remain a priority now some money laundering will be deterred and the market abuse will also be reduced ideally british columbia and canada will no longer be attractive places for money laundering well, no single measure recommended by the panel will have a large and immediate impact across the whole market. Housing demand and therefore house prices will be reduced to some extent and there will be long-term modest improvements in housing affordability, hopefully. <laughs> so let's let's finish these things off by looking at some of the red flags that you can identify, just much like relationships. And we say that in, in real estate, it is a very much a relationship-based business. In relationships, you should not ag- ignore red flags. Yep. Um, this is not a relationship show, Dan, but you are very right. <laughs> um, if you're listening to the show, it means you're either very involved in real estate or that you want to be, which means that you're likely involved in day-to-day real estate activities, which in turn means that you actually have a higher risk of touching or being involved in some kind of money laundering in real estate than most other Canadians, whether you even know it or not. So let's look at a few things that you can identify as red flags. Start us off here, Dan. So red flag number one. And this is this is kind of a an OPM strategy to be honest. So this is kind of interesting. Uh-oh. Someone offers you money or some other perceived benefit, so they can use your credit to get a mortgage. So in this money laundering scenario, the property can be modest, but it can also be more luxurious than the individual could afford if they were to buy the property themselves. The individual buying the property, known as a straw buyer, goes through the process of purchasing the property using the credit rating, but with the criminal's money for the down payment, closing costs, and the mortgage payments. The goal of the purchase is to, is to place proceeds of crime back into the system using the individual's real estate purchase on their behalf. The scenario only demonstrates a money laundering, not only demonstrates a money laundering scheme, but it's also mortgage fraud because you know the person paying the mortgage isn't, or the beneficial owner of the property isn't actually the person holding the mortgage. By re- misrepresenting themselves and their financial institutions, to the, um, the straw buyer has committed mortgage fraud. Totally. So again, goes back to my point, right? How much of this money laundering is directly correlated with the increase in mortgage fraud? And as you said, going back to Michael Burry, like, is this all getting to that tipping point now? And again, in this money laundering scenario, when criminals use that straw buyer, they disguise the true beneficial owner, the criminal or the criminal enterprise uh, of the property. They protect the identities of the criminals as the only name of the straw buyer is associated with the real estate transaction. The um, anonymity complaces police attempts to bring criminals to justice or seize illegal assets. And we've actually seen a lot of this recently in the Toronto and uh, Vancouver real estate markets. So the I guess the next one is someone offers to pay you large cash payments. So red flag number two, often beyond the market rates. So cash beyond the market rates for your residential property as part of a lease to own deal. In this money laundering scenario, the purchase price is too good to be true. RICA cautions consumers to be wary as criminals will often leave the property vacant or use it for illegal purposes, greatly harm the property, offer to pay the balance owed uh, after only a short period, ask to close the transaction with a private mortgage from you. So VTB, they might be asking you for. Now, 
we've talked about this and I've gotten this question from clients both looking to rent properties or or vice versa clients that are renting properties where they're like you know it would it incentivize someone if I just paid everything up front and, and in most cases you know people see a year's worth of rent check and they're like yeah give me it give me it you know that looks great but I've heard you know, or they want a six month up, up front or something like that. Those are red flags, guys. Um, that usually means in, in some cases that I've heard, at least that if you're getting six months up front, you might get that and then you won't get anything for the next year or two. Um, or that check may bounce or, or whatever it may be. Um, any, any specific anecdotes from you there, Dan? You must have run into some of that over your, over the years. Yeah. I mean, I see a lot of this stuff. Like I've actually, you know, I, I've, I've, talk to and trained agents who have been even like victimized by this or got caught in a bad situation because they were really desperate to get a deal and you know they ended up making a mistake and being defrauded or whatever it was and especially on the rent side like and it's i I mean it's really tough like you can do a lot but criminals of this nature are sophisticated they're using sophisticated financial vehicles to circumvent certain things and the new one now is this title fraud that we're seeing um and i actually did a entire twitter space on this with the um one of the principals from chicago title which is a i think one of the biggest title insurers in the world and obviously they have an incentive to talk about this because they're losing money to this when whenever insurance whenever Mm -hmm. like they have to pay out an title insurance claim so and they're really trying to get to the bottom of it um it's it's becoming very very messy right now um and there's a couple of other examples because i know we do have a lot of contractors who listen to our podcast um and there's there's they are involved i would say especially if you're using that ozarks model they're involved in in um (laughs) They, they really are involved in, in money laundering without knowing it in a lot of cases. So I'll get to that, but give me red flag three and then I'll use the contractor version as red flag four. So red flag three would be, let's say you own a commercial property, retail, mixed use, whatever, and someone offers to enter into a lease to own the commercial space as part of the deal. They may offer you uh, to pay you in very large cash lease payments, again, beyond market rates that escalate over a short period of time. So again, guys, if it's too good to be true... It's money laundering. <laughs> uh, keep the property vacant with no business operating at the property or pay full price quickly uh, with a private mortgage from you. Now, again, if you've, you know, I don't know where you guys are when you're listening to this, but if you've been to any kind of part of town and there's, I don't know, a restaurant, a laundromat, a convenience store, any kind of small retail commercial space. And you never see anyone going in and out of that place. I mean, I was in a convenience store before going to the movies a couple of weeks ago. I just wanted a little bag of candy because I've got a sweet tooth. So I went into this convenience store and I swear this convenience store, I'm not going to name the location uh, somewhere in the GTA, but this place must have had, I don't know, uh, it was a thousand square feet and it probably had, you know, maybe a hundred items for sale, which is a very small. I mean, there was like a cute, there was Q-tips and then Sour Patch Kids and then like chapstick and that was it. And it all had dust on it. And I was like, this place is definitely a money laundering front. So um anyways, in this money laundering scenario in, red, in the red flag three, uh, it is clear that the individual is making these lease payments uh, to have access to large cash resources. The goal is to place as much money from the criminal activity back into the system. Remember those three steps uh, through the lease payments as possible. So if I, Dan, if you're renting me a space for 2,500, I'm like, yeah, let me just give you 35. 
you're likely not going to say no. At the same time, the equity in the property is created through the lease to own arrangement and the eventual purchase. Running a business at the lease property is not the goal of the lease. So that's number three. Dan, what is number four? Yeah, it's funny. Like, I mean, all of those models that you just described, like they, you know, I, I, I imagine they exist, but I feel like they it kind of is almost a reflection of how like little the government actually knows about like the simplicity of, of money laundering or like what people are doing. Like, to be honest with you, um, you know, where like there's using the, let's use the Ozarks model. Like the guy buys a Marina or whatever it is, or a resort pumps a bunch of cash into it. Cause it's easy to, you can go buy materials and pay contractors in cash. And I think it's like over 10, well it is over FinTrack is over like 10 grand at the bank. If you try and take out more than 10 grand mm-hmm. or that that's a considered a large cash transaction. Um, so those, there are instances where it, that red flag goes up within the financial system. So, you know, you're paying contractors incrementally through cash. Contractors are not reporting this stuff in a lot of cases, right? And so person buys, they're basically doing a burr, honestly, they really are. It's, but except maybe one of the letters is a, is launder, right? Um, so it's maybe, maybe a burl, <laughs> a burl. but, um, yeah. yeah, but, but honestly, like it's buy a, a rundown property invest a ton of money in it cash pay contractors cash maybe you put the materials on the books and you're paying those with um you know with with like on paper so that you can actually deduct it against capital gains if you ever need to sell or something like that but then you the you know the the owner will i keep saying you like as if i'm giving people money laundering 101 course right now but i do not advise this is not financial advice <laughs> not money laundering advice <laughs> but but the owner would go and um and and basically you know refinance against the new value of the property that they've created through, you know, we know labor is a, a very expensive portion of the cost of renovating. So spend a bunch of money in materials, that's all on paper, spend a bunch of money in labor, none of that shows up on paper. And all of this, this value is built into the property and then they don't sell it because then you realize the, the value increase and you have to pay capital gains on that in a lot of cases. I mean, some people, you know, in, in, in these instances, I think are selling them, but I think a lot of the individuals are refinancing. Cause then you don't have to pay capital gains and you're just taking it and you get to hold the asset and let the asset, which is a, typically a cash flowing asset fund those payments. And this is like a very common iteration. And the, I don't, I think from a policy perspective, the only way to really crack down on that is change the way that cash is handled from like from a contractor perspective. And look, con- all contractors want to work for cash. Like there are obviously their own reasons why they would want to do that. And so it is an interesting problem from my perspective to solve because it also really matters for that industry, which is residential investment. We know a lot of contractors and you can't like just pull, take away what their, you know, their, their primary payment structure. So anyway. Yeah, no, really, really good points there, Dan. I mean, let's wrap it up here. I think my, my biggest takeaways are, you know, um, it is a massive issue in Canada, uh, from on a global scale, you know, uh, the, the states has us next to the likes of like Albania and Afghanistan, where it's, where it's just as big of an issue. Um, so it's good to see the legislation's changing around it and that there's actually steps in the right direction. The reason we did this episode is because 
you, if you're listening to this, you're likely a real estate professional, a mortgage professional, uh, and a real estate investor, and you'll become close to money laundering, whether you know it or not. And, and it does have a really negative effect on our general market, right? We've got inflated real estate prices that are directly correlated by upwards of five to seven percent in our major markets to money laundering. So this is kind of, you know, just a PSA. Be aware, look for those red flags. If it's too good to be true, it might be money laundering. Any uh, closing remarks there, Dan? No, I think we're good here. I mean, I think we've we've analyzed like what, you know, the the impact of it is. And um, I think the other the other piece is like, it gives you a sense of like who you might be competing with and why it might seem like the market is irrational. It 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 is because there are literally consumers in the market who don't have to act rationally because they their their dependence isn't making a good sound real estate investment. Their you know their incentive is to do something completely different, and so it might help you understand why the market can get into this maniacal or irrational state sometimes. So as an investor, yeah. which I think you know in the spring market right now where things are heating up again, it can be frustrating. Yeah, no, really good points. For more information on this topic, go watch Ozark. <laughs> um, just kidding. Uh, thanks so much for listening, everybody. Hope you got a ton of value out of this episode. We'll see you soon. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group, license number 10317 Agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.